Well, as I said, as we began our service tonight, we're here tonight to to gaze, not to literally gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ, but to gaze with the with the eyes of our heart and the eyes of our minds, to ponder the cross, to know it, to behold it, to feel it, to apprehend it, to know to be rescued by it and be changed by it. So we do that by singing his truth, but it's truth that we get in his word. And so we do it not just by singing, but as I said, looking intently at the actual words of scripture. If you have a Bible with you here tonight, I'm in Luke chapter 23. In a couple different places, the New Testament says that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one on the left and one on the right. Luke's account of Jesus' life and death, though, gives us a unique part of this equation. He gives us the conversation that takes place between these three men. What a unique conversation. Three men on crosses, their death looming. And they have a conversation slash debate. And it's so telling. Many a preacher has come to preach this story and called it, usually, the story of the two criminals. Well, I, on the other hand, can't help but notice the irony that Jesus is actually right there in the middle. He's also on a cross. I can't help but think that this is really a story of three criminals. It has to be because there are three crosses. And in the first century... The cross was not the religious symbol that it is today, something nice, maybe in gold, to put on your neck or to hang in your house, but it was, it was the execution symbol. It was, it, was their, um, it was their electric chair, and they put Jesus on it, and they treated him as a criminal, as a heinous criminal. And proof of that is that he's right next to these two other criminals. Who are these criminals? Well, these criminals had no relation to Jesus or his movement. They weren't part of the disciples in any way. They're just criminals. And they're just criminals that are on the docket for crucifixion that day. If you're writing the story and making it up, like some people think the New Testament writers did, I can't imagine why you'd add this feature that these unnamed, unspecial, average criminals are put alongside your Messiah like he's just a criminal? You see, these unnamed criminals aren't famous, they're not special, and it all suggests, it all paints a picture that Jesus was treated as an everyday criminal, a nobody. The religious leaders wanted him dead. Sort of the crowd that was around him for his trial. Remember they said, give us that hooligan. Let him loose, but crucify Jesus. Pilate, the governor, didn't want to crucify Jesus. He didn't think that the charges really did add up to a crucifixion. But he didn't think that protecting Jesus' life, on the other hand, was worth the headache that would come from this crowd continuing to be angry if they didn't get their way with Jesus. So he's crucified. You know, that's not that unusual even for Messiah-like people. 
around the first century time. In the decades before and after Jesus' death, there were literally dozens of Messiah-like figures who were leading anti-establishment movements. That's one way of describing what Jesus was doing, right? It's an anti-establishment movement. We just happen to believe that it's the anti-establishment movement. But there were these other guys that came along and did something similar. But they all had basically the same story. Varying degrees of success or failure, bigger crowds with them or against them. But in the end, the leader was caught and he was crucified. And then the movement fizzled. You ever heard of Judah Maccabee? No? Simon Maccabee? If you have a devout Roman Catholic background, you might have heard of Simon Maccabee. But how about John of Geshilla? Anyone? Heard of him? No? Simon Bar-Giora? I mean, it's a catchy name. You've never heard of Simon Bar-Giora? Well, I hope you haven't. No one but ancient history geeks knows these names. And even among the geeks, these are just blips on the screen. They, they probably forget the names without looking it up in their books from time to time. These guys had one thing in common. They all led a movement against the man, the first century man. But then they were caught and killed and their followers waited for someone else to come along who would be a messiah. But then there's Jesus smack dab in the middle of all these faux messiahs. He's no blip on the screen. He's an earthquake that cracked the screen wide open. And proof of that is that you're here on the other side of the globe of where these things happened 2,000 years later to hear about, to sing about, to reflect on, to pray to, and to worship this Messiah who, in the first century, was hung on a cross. It's not just here. It's everywhere in the globe this is happening. It's not just once a year at a holiday or something. Not just a few times a year at a few holidays, but we meet weekly as Christians to celebrate his death and his resurrection. And those who call upon his name don't just think that he's to be interacted with on a weekly basis, but we think that he's to be communed with on a daily basis, minute by minute, all of life being lived out through the lens of his death and his resurrection. That guy that we celebrate in all of life and every day was a first century man who died upon a cross, and he died upon a cross between two criminals. And I said they had a conversation. So let's look at that last conversation between three criminals, we could say. It's in Luke 23. Really, the first criminal, as you can guess, I would say, is no criminal at all. He's treated as a criminal. That's the sense in which I'm calling him a criminal. But he was innocent. He didn't do any of the crimes of which he was accused. And Luke's account especially emphasizes this, that he was innocent of the crimes of which he was charged. 
I think it's something like six to eight times toward the end of the book here. Luke gives us a clue that this is a kangaroo court. These are trumped up charges. Pilate knew it. That's why he washed his hands. All right, I'm done with this. I'll give you what you want. But he symbolized essentially that it wasn't his call. Whole books have been written on the conspiracy of the cross and the twisted religious political dynamics of the first century that led to the murder of Jesus. He was innocent. And in that sense, he was crucified unjustly. But he was also crucified unjustly in another sense. It's not just that he was innocent on a judicial or a political level, but he's also innocent on a spiritual level. He'd not done anything wrong. He wasn't just innocent of their charges. He was innocent of everything. And more than just innocent, he was perfectly righteous. He didn't just not do the stuff God said to not do. He did the stuff that God said to do and did it perfectly and did it with pure motives. And yet he died. And he died because there was a divine purpose to his death. The scripture says all over the place, even 600 years before Jesus came, that it was his father's will. Why was it his father's will that he would be crucified and die such a horrible, a criminal's death? Well, he was paying a price. Paying a price on a cosmic level. He was dying in the place of all who would ever later come to know him and come to confess him as Savior and Lord, to lean on him for salvation and receive his mercy. So the way the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is this. God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin and didn't do any sin, to be sin for us or to bear sin, to become sin and be treated as sin for us. Why? That we might have the righteousness of God in him or through him. We have his righteousness as a gift. It's not our own. He bears our punishment for us as a gift. It's not his. He dies a death that we deserved to give us a righteousness that we never could have earned. It's what we call in theological terms, substitution. He was a substitute, dying in our place, giving us his righteousness. It's what 1 Peter 3 says, he suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. So we can be declared righteous, because of what Jesus died, what Jesus did upon the cross on our behalf. He died in our place because the wages of sin is death and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Something cosmic was happening upon the cross when Jesus died and that's why you see cosmic-like alterations. Drew read it earlier, an earthquake, sky going dark, even tombs being torn open and people coming forth to symbolize his resurrection and the life in him to come. That's the first criminal. He's no criminal at all. 
But there's a second criminal who mocks Jesus in unbelief. Look at verse 39 of Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Are you not the Christ? Literally, the Messiah. Apparently, he's heard that Christ is the Messiah. Maybe just that day. Maybe before that day. But it's obvious he doesn't really believe it. He's only hedging his bet against it. He's self-serving, isn't he? He wants a quick rescue. If you are, I, I doubt it, but if you are the Messiah, then why don't you do us some good here? Save yourself, and while you're at it, save us too. It's all about him. He's condescending to Jesus, isn't he? I mean, at his best, he sees Jesus as his servant, his errand boy. At worst, he takes his precious few breaths, his last few words, to taunt and mock the one who ironically was exactly what this guy said. He is the Messiah, and he was saving people, but saving them through his death, not through a clever miracle to get out of the chains. That's the second criminal. He mocked Jesus in unbelief, but most of the story is given to the third criminal. The third criminal defends Jesus. He's definitely the most well-known of this story. He defends Jesus because despite his guilt, he believes. You see verse 40? The other rebuked him, saying, he rebuked the other crucified guy, the other thief, next to Jesus on the other side. He rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Are you kidding? We're all about to die here. I mean, you're going to play schoolyard bully right now? Have you noticed you're naked too? Have you noticed you don't look so good yourself right now? Are you really going to to pick on this one? And at first it just sounds like this is a defense of a fellow sufferer, right? He's just having sympathy on one who's being mocked at. But there's more. We don't know where this third criminal heard what he heard. We don't know when he heard what he heard and what he heard exactly and when it all clicked. So we don't know what came before this. But we can read here his confession from the cross and see how rich it is. He says in verse 41, we have been condemned justly. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. Unlike the other criminal who wants to Get out of here. Get us out of here. Give me a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. This guy's saying, we've been condemned justly. We're getting exactly what we deserve. So he understood something of his own guilt. He understood something of the justice of his punishment, which is frankly remarkable because he's in the midst of punishment. 
no matter how bad we're talking, no matter how much evil we're talking, it's rare for the guilty to own their own guilt, especially when they're in the midst of paying for that guilt. I mean, you've heard the saying before, no one in prison is guilty. They're all innocent. That's not just because they want to keep their rap sheet to themselves and they're embarrassed by it. Are you kidding? In prison? Who's embarrassed by being in prison? I don't think that's it. I think it's that they all think that they're innocent. They don't think it's justice that they're there. How much more rare would it be when you're talking about the sentence of crucifixion to own the guilt and to say that it's fair? Can't you imagine a guy guilty? He's a criminal. He's been condemned. He's hanging on the cross, bleeding, knowing he's about to die in sheer anguish because of this slow torture. And he has to be thinking to himself, perhaps even yelling out loud, I may be guilty, but surely this isn't just. Surely this is too much. This is, this is cruel. Even if I did wrong. But this man on the third cross, he sees his crucifixion from the cross as being just. It's part of his due reward. Now let me clarify. This sermon is not becoming a defense of capital punishment. If you're tempted to think that. Neither do I think that that's what this guy is getting at. I don't think he's giving an apologetic for capital punishment or he's giving a defense of Rome and its most painful form of execution ever invented. He has to be saying something so much deeper, something about himself, something about God. I think he's saying that he knows himself to be a condemned man not just in the Roman court, but in God's court. He knows what the scripture says somehow. The wages of sin is death. And then he says in verse 41, the second half of it, this man referring to Jesus has done nothing wrong. Unlike us, he's done nothing wrong. He understands that Jesus was condemned unjustly. He's been hearing the whole court, the trial take place. He's been thinking to himself, boy, that wasn't like mine. Uh, I wish I had his story. Maybe I would have gotten off. But I think he's not just thinking about Jesus being unjustly punished in the Roman court. I think he's, I think he's essentially saying that Jesus did nothing wrong. That's literally what he says, right? I don't think he just means he did nothing wrong in the, in the Roman court to get to this point. I think he knows something of what we would refer to as Jesus' sinlessness or his perfect righteousness. It's amazing what this man knows. Again, we don't know when he began to hear these things. Maybe just that day. Maybe somewhat scattered over the past three years. Maybe while he was doing his crimes. Maybe... He did his crimes a year ago. He's come to believe in Christ as Messiah, but still has to pay for his crimes. We don't know. We don't know when it all clicked, but it's clearly clicked here. 
when he's on the cross and he sees Jesus as a sinless sacrifice. And he says in verse 42 to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is marvelous. He believes that Jesus has a kingdom. And he believes that Jesus is a king. Jesus, the one who's next to him, naked, bruised, bleeding, scarred, crown of thorns. He's been mocked by, well, comparatively weak soldiers. If we're talking about the Messiah, the God, man coming to earth, surely he can take care of a few soldiers, can he? But this guy's really gotten a licking. This guy thirsts. This guy looks like he has needs. This guy sure looks like he's not going to make it. Somehow through it all, or maybe in it all, he sees a king. Who that day saw a king? I'll tell you, some of who didn't, the disciples didn't. They ran and fled. Remember there have been other messiahs? first century, second century BC, first century AD, after Jesus was around. There are other Jewish messiahs, people who led a revolt. And they all got crucified and the people fled. It's almost like the disciples said to themselves, oh great, we know how this goes. We know what we're supposed to do now. Get the heck out of here. The only ones that stayed behind of the disciples were the women. So he sees Jesus as a king with a kingdom, but not a typical kingdom. Obviously, he must know what Jesus said. and think it's John 19. Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not that kind of conquesting kingdom like these previous and following messiahs will try to bring in. It's not a political kingdom. It's not a national kingdom. It's not a kingdom that's advanced with Peter's sword trying to fight the soldiers. If it were that kind of kingdom, Jesus said, then my disciples would be swinging swords. But it's not that kind of kingdom, so they keep their swords in their sheaths. Not a typical kingdom. And apparently the man on the cross sees that in Jesus and in his kingdom. Amazingly, he apparently believes that death is not the end for Jesus. I don't know if he knows about the coming resurrection. I I guess not. I would guess not. But he believes enough about Jesus' eternality, that he's forever, or that he's bigger than death, that he's saying, once we get on the other side, remember me. But there's another side? And Jesus is going to be on it? He's not just going to die and that's it? He believes death's not the end for Jesus, but he also believes that he can have life after death. And apparently he believes that Jesus is the deciding factor about what happens at that judgment. He believes that Jesus is the true partner, apparently. He must know something of what the Apostle Paul said, that Jesus is the just and the justifier. He's just and he is the merciful one. This guy upon the cross, the believing criminal, sees that true salvation 
is eternal salvation. It's salvation from an eternal sentence. You see, he sees that his real problem wasn't the pickle that he currently found himself in and how easy it would be to think that this is your biggest problem. I've never been crucified. I hope I don't ever have to be. I know from, uh, from doctors and historians that it's horrible and painful. The cruelest form of execution ever invented. Can you imagine being on the cross next to Jesus, knowing that he's the Messiah, he's able, he's the Savior, he's the living one, he's the king, and he's bringing in a kingdom, and you don't pray to get out of this? You don't pray that the pain would stop? The first criminal, that's all he wanted. He wanted Jesus to get him down and set him free. But the believing criminal didn't ask for that. He asked for a better rescue. Not a second chance. A rescue for something that's beyond the physical life. Not more physical life, but eternal life. You see, left to ourselves, the scariest thing is not death. It's what's after death. But this man believes that there's salvation. Mercy. And that salvation in this Savior is not by works. It's by his grace. It's according to divine mercy. It's received through faith and calling out, asking for that pardon. This guy has to believe all that. Why? Because he has nothing to commend to God. He's a, a, a condemned criminal. He made such a lifestyle of thieving that he's executed for it. He has nothing to bring to the table, nothing to claim before God. He doesn't dare talk about relative righteousness or being good enough. He believes that salvation comes not by works, but according to God's mercy, received through faith when we call out to him. His calling out looked like this, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Another confession of prayer in the Bible was just this, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And what does Jesus say about that man who said, God be merciful to me, the sinner? Jesus said that man went home justified that day. What does he say to this man who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus said, verse 43, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' words from the cross show us that his grace can be granted freely and immediately. He says, today. He tells us that salvation's ultimate end is to be with him. It's personal, isn't it? And to be with him, he says, is paradise. Uh, we tend to think, be with him. Eh, I guess if it's paradise and he's there, I guess i got to be with him. But paradise, tell me more about this. What, what do I get to do? How good is it? I think this is saying here, 
but the paradise is to be with him. And that's what we see described even in symbolic form in Revelation 21 and 22. Yeah, the streets are gold in the symbolic description, but streets are gold. Now, that might look nice in the Wizard of Oz. I suppose in the Middle East, there's some streets that are actually made out of gold and some expression of riches. But I think it's actually a description of inferior glory. The things of this world that we treasure and, 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 and we refine, we think, our, we collect, it just, it's functional. I don't know, put it on the street, I guess. The glory of the new heaven and the new earth is not the gold street or the giant pearl that made up one gate, let alone the giant oyster that made the giant pearl. The glory of the new heaven and the new earth is that his glory outshines the the sun. There's no need for a sun because his glory lights up everything. That's what it means to be with him in paradise. And Jesus confirms by this what the humble criminal believed and testified that God saves according to his mercy, not according to our works. Jesus did not give him a program of penance. More ways to show yourself sorry. Jesus didn't tell him that he'd have to work off all that bad stuff that came before in purgatory. No. Instant, free, intimate, Complete forgiveness, fully restored to fellowship. The prodigal has come home, no strings attached. So which criminal are you? Oh yeah, which criminal are you? You say, I'm not a criminal. Yeah, you are. And so am I. We all have sin. And the payment for sin is death. We're all under judgment. Ours, our death may not be as physically painful as crucifixion, but we all deserve death, and we all, I don't know if you've noticed, all die. You say, well, okay, I might be a criminal, I guess, in one sense, in like a religious sense or something, but I'm not as bad as that thief, that first criminal. I'm not as bad as him. I mean, just the category of thief. That's not me. I might have stolen a pack of gum once when I was in third grade. I stole a tennis ball off the neighbor's lawn when I was in second grade. I still feel bad about that. I should put a tennis ball in the mail. So you might not think yourself a thief, but you know, we've stolen two, all of us, not just tennis balls and chewing gum. We've stolen on a much greater scale even than what this thief of the first century stole from homes or markets. Sin by nature is stealing from God. It's hijacking his gifts and his tools that are to be used for his glory in driving that car towards another God. Another God of self, another God of stuff, doesn't quite matter. It's another God. It's thievery. We're guilty. 
Just like both these men next to Jesus, both of them were guilty and both died. But oh, what a difference after that. One's guilt led him to humility and recognition of trouble and contrition, brokenness, helplessness, desperation, and hence he clings to a savior and not just a savior who can help him out of a temporary bind, even as big of a temporary bind as a crucifixion. But he sees an eternal, forever perfect savior in part because of his guilt. But the other guy's guilt hardens his heart. He's so self-righteous through the whole thing, isn't he? We only have a, a sentence from him. But even his request for help is really no trust at all. It's an expression of his self-righteousness, him putting himself and his wants first. You see, in Luke's gospel all the way through, the righteous are almost like the, they're in quotes, the righteous. They think that they're righteous. They're not righteous. Jesus said that he didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. Sinners in Luke are like professional sinners. They're thieves, prostitutes, tax collectors who steal from the poor. They're the bad of the bad. Those are the sinners. They know themselves to be sinners, partly because society has casted them as sinners, branded them as sinners. They know it. They hear it every day. They more easily know that they're in trouble. But in Luke, the righteous really are sinners, but they think that they're righteous, and hence they don't think that they need a Savior. Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. I didn't come like a physician to the well. Not that there are any who are well, but there are some who think that they're well. And those who think that they're well won't seek a physician. But those who are sick know that they need a physician. Friend, do you see from this that here in a sense, Luke 23, we have two sinners, but sin is blinding. And you can be a capital S sinner and still be self-righteous. And you can be what society calls righteous, good, goody two-shoes, straight-laced, taxes on the nose, and be just as condemned as this man or these men apart from the mercy of God. So look at the Savior upon the cross and tell me what you see. You see a charlatan? You see a get-out-of-jail-free card? Do you see someone or something that might one day impress you enough to deserve your faith? Well, that's the faith of the first criminal. It's no faith at all. And did you notice that Jesus never even acknowledged him? That's scary, isn't it? He says to Jesus a word or two and asks Jesus a question. And Jesus doesn't even acknowledge him. Just like he taught his disciples in Luke 12, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge even before the angels of God. So don't presume on the Lord's patience. Perhaps you're tempted to look at the story of the believing thief on the cross 
what we might call a deathbed conversion and think, well, that sounds pretty good. Do what you want until the end and then call on him. I'll do what this guy did. I'll call on in just these kind of ways that you talked about, Ryan. You plan to wait till then to be saved. Well, you don't know how life's going to go, do you? Not everyone gets to die a slow death, you know. And not everyone gets to die a slow death where we know, where they know this is it, and they have time to think about it. And even if you did, you don't know that you'd get there and confess them. At least one out of two in this story didn't. For that matter, no one since these two guys has had the privilege of dying in the physical presence of Jesus. This is a unique situation, isn't it? Don't think that this is a lesson in waiting. This is a lesson in seeking him. Yes, deathbed conversions can happen and do happen. Praise God, I've seen them. But I've been a pastor just long enough to know that there are many deathbed hard-heartedness examples as well. There are all kinds of people who who die in unbelief not liking Jesus very much. So Thomas Goodwin, a pastor in England in the 17th century, he said, God gave us one story of last-minute repentance and faith so that no one living would be without hope, but he only gave us one such story so that the proud would not presume. Seek him today while he may be found. Call upon him While he is near, Isaiah 55 says. Or maybe you look upon this Savior on the cross and you, because God's given you new eyes to see it, you see that he is a king. He's a lamb that was slain. And because he was slain, he's worthy. Worthy of worship. This kingdom's not of of this world. Maybe you see and you know Death cannot contain him. He's the Messiah. He's the judge. He's the living one and the merciful Savior. And his death was more than just an accident. His death was more also than just a temporary rescue. It was an eternal one. And he is more than a rescue for that matter. Remember how personal it was that he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He's a man. He's a God-man with whom... We are to have a relationship. That's what we've been created for. In one sense, this believing criminal story is so atypical. There's only one like it. You better not try to imitate it. In another sense, it is so typical. He's just a plain old Joe who knew he had sin and eventually came to a place of desperation about that sin. He owned it and refused to suppress it. And when he got to the end of himself, he saw through the blood, through the suffering and humility, a king who suffered on his behalf, a king who laid down his life for his people. He saw one who on the other side would bring in a kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, and a kingdom who has the power to bring us into it. That's paradise. I pray you know that.
I pray you know that he's gracious and merciful. That our God is abounding in steadfast love. 